From the Scott Hyde Archive in Amarillo, Texas, this is Disaster Tales. I'm here today with Renee Dantes, who's been researching the effects of the 1918-1919 influenza epidemic on Amarillo, Texas. Hi, Renee. Hi. Not Marie. <laughs> no, not today. <laughs> <laughs> so what can you tell us? Uh, well, I was first interested in this idea of the Spanish flu or influenza in Amarillo after going to the cemetery and having heard... Um, uh, tales basically of a mass grave out there that the citizens of Amarillo had suffered the a, a great loss and they had to bury people and multiple people in one grave so they could just get them out of the out of the way basically but um I, I found some interesting things about that and I don't know if it was as prevalent but it was maybe as scary as that all sounds. Also, that was around the time that Amarillo was growing because they had put, brought the railroad in. Right. And so they had people coming in from other parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny because we we know that the, the flu itself sort of started in, you know, Fort Riley, Kansas, and then it, it went to other base camps because of the fact that you didn't know how sick you were until a couple of days later. And, That's right. And by then, everything and everyone you've touched is susceptible to picking up what you've got. Right. And so a train ride could also be a death sentence for an entire group of people that well, will never see each other again. Well, and that's what I saw when I was researching um, the move troop movements. All right. Was they would have, they would send them out before they knew they had it in their camp. Mm-hmm. And the problem was that the War Department would not stop sending men. They needed men. And eventually, some one of the head doctors, the lead doctors, convinced the guy from the Health Department, Rupert Blue, who really didn't do a whole lot. He was our Surgeon General. Mm-hmm. They finally convinced them to stop the draft oh, yeah. so that they wouldn't be bringing more healthy young men in. Right. And this disease actually was reactive in a way that Normally, you have an influenza or any kind of epidemic, and the young people are more susceptible because right. their immune systems are mm-hmm. not developed. Elderly people, because theirs is... Con- is uh... Compromised. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Word, yes. And, and so in this one, though, young, healthy people with strong immune systems also died because yeah. the fight that was going on in the lungs, they had real powerful immune system, and it just flooded the lungs, and they died in pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that was it, it, saying that you know they stopped the draft, so they they can't they didn't bring in new people. Uh, Amarillo and the Texas Panhandle actually, there's an article saying that anyone who's been convicted of a crime has to stay in the jail because they're not allowing anyone new into the penitentiary without being uh, sort of quarantined or, or removed for 30 days well, that's... to make sure that they didn't bring introduce the Spanish flu into the penitentiary itself. So did they not have cases in the penitentiary? Uh, they, I'm sure that they did. I had, hadn't seen any recorded uh, 
the stats on that, but they had the forthright uh, to know that if you introduce it there, it's going to be bonkers. Wildfire. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there's there's definitely uh, uh, an idea there that they're they're on top of the span of the of the safety of the people that are are exposed to this right and they were protecting their their inmates from the disease Mm -hmm. because yeah it would spread through that kind of population uh, rapidly and they probably have more deaths than normal Mm -hmm. yep Uh, yeah and a lot because a lot of that you can't you can't isolate them enough right i mean it's one thing to have you know you tell people the citizens to stay in their homes okay well you've got two or three people or five or if it's a big family, six or seven people in a house, but you, you can't, you can't separate <laughs> prisoners like that. That's There's right. only so much room. Well, and you can keep them in their cells, but you still have people that are feeding them. Yeah. And when, if one of those people from the outside, a guard is mm-hmm. infected, then he would spread it with the food to everybody else yep. or when he delivered it or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that's, when you have an enclosed population like that, you have to really fight hard to protect them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was, um, there was also a um, an issue of um, schools, um, theaters, things like that that um, were essentially cut, you know, closed down for a while until it was until it was pretty clear. Um, that was something that I did notice that. It did go into 19 here through parts of March, um, and and then it kind of just, it dies down, um, but in, there was in January, um, there's a, there was a, a headline basically saying there's no need to worry, um, it's, it's the same old stuff, it's just, you know, and so it was very, I don't know, trying to be reassuring, I think. But then there, a little bit later in that month, it was they were talking about you know we don't want to repeat, but uh, there there were some uh, obituaries that I did find in um, in some of the the newspapers, and one of them you know we were talking about medicine wasn't really a scientific thing at that point, um, but the this one is uh, the man's name is Saul. Uh, Solon Randall. He was a well-known druggist of Amarillo, and he actually died of a relapse of the Spanish influenza. So he had had it at least maybe once gotten better and gotten again. He was the one giving people medicine. (laughs) That's true. There was actually a phenomenon where if the people didn't die immediately from the flu, like within 24, 36 hours, Mm -hmm. when they did the autopsies on those, they found regular influenza. But if they lived a little longer, they had that secondary pneumonia come in. It was an opportunistic virus mm. that would come in and, and infect the damaged lungs. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if he had a relapse, he probably got over the flu, but then had the secondary infection that killed yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, another one of the the obituaries that I found was, it was sort of interesting because it sounded like this person was one of those that we were talking about being a you know young, healthy individual and uh, it was mrs ethel peters um and i love how they always gave their address back then um and she died uh from the 
uh, complications of the Spanish flu. She was 33, and she had six children, and, uh, and you know, her husband was still alive, but it was, it's one of those things that she died of, um, of pneumonia, but it was a, it was a complication of that, of that flu. Well, it's interesting how families dealt with that back then, because of course there was no birth control. And if a woman could remain healthy long enough and not have any complications, she could have 10, 12, 13 children. Mm -hmm. And in some of the cases where the mother died and the father and the children survived, the father either remarried quickly. So there'd be somebody to take care of the children or farm the children out to other people. Mm-hmm. And like, and in some cases, like give them away. Yeah, I don't ha- no, have any idea if that's what happened with this family, but it did happen in some families. Yeah, uh, yeah, because you they just couldn't take care of them at, at that point. Um, I do um, the daily health reports that were were given on uh, there's there was two papers in Amarillo at the time. The Amarillo Daily News would go come in the morning, from what I understand, and then the the daily panhandle uh, was the one in the afternoon. So you got the latest news and that's where they would publish the health report. They didn't do it in the, in the morning edition, but they did it in the afternoon. And well, you so, don't, don't want to ruin breakfast for no. people. How, but it was so funny. The really dire headlines were all in the morning. I, and it didn't even really talk about it in the afternoons. There was a society pages and the what's do what, what's going on in the, in the city. But uh, in into de- the late December, uh, because I I couldn't really find any more of them past December in the in the time I've had to had to find and to search for them. They I do, I can tell that they do have over two thousand cases of the Spanish influenza, and it tells you know it's dismissed about nineteen hundred of them or so. And it's got the deaths listed at 74 in December. So we're talking of 74 people from October to December that have been documented mm-hmm. having been killed by the Spanish influenza. And the they did have a quarantine. So, I mean, there's a, there's a category in here that's released from quarantine today. And so it, it, it shows how many, and it also talks about how many new cases. So there was three new cases this day. And, you know, there's there's some that the case the number of cases that they that they entered was like there's one there's twenty six on this one. Um twenty eight, forty two new cases. And that's from uh October thirtieth there was twenty eight new cases and then the next day there was forty two new cases. So it's it, it added up quite rapidly well in october is when the flu really blew up in the country mm-hmm. all over the world yeah and yeah they would have one case one day the next day they'd have 10 the next day they'd have 20 the next day they'd have 40 i mean it yeah. was really what's kind of funny about or interesting we won't say funny i don't think the spanish flu is funny but there wasn't much detail given or in the newspapers about the Spanish flu until October of 1918. And there, there were quite a few people that did have the illness and it, it, but it wasn't, it didn't blossom quickly. So one of the big, uh, 
headlines uh, was that on the October 3rd, that Spanish influenza spreading rapidly over the country. And then uh, a few days later, there was a headline saying that um, the city health officer says influenza here is relatively scarce. A couple days after that, there's a giant warning that says, warning, Spanish influenza to the citizens of Amarillo. But it was a very much a, an idea of, hey, this thing is coming, please be aware. And then a few days later, they started to publish daily health reports that the, uh, that the city health department would send to the newspaper. And it started out on the front page for several uh, several weeks, and then it was relegated to second and then third pages, as the as the numbers kept basically increasing. Um, there were thousands of cases um, of the flu in Amarillo, and the population was probably close to about fourteen thousand, maybe a little more at the time, about nineteen eighteen, um, late eighteen, early nineteen, and that's still a significant number. I mean, that's enough in a town that small where you're going to know somebody who's had the flu, most likely. Correct. And there, it did. It was known by a different name um, before. It was La Grippe. It was. <laughs> it had the, a French name, apparently. Yeah, um, and, that, and that was really common. They, that was all over the nation. They called it La Grippe. Right, and one of the articles that they had written about the the idea of of the flu so there was um so one of the headlines is spanish influenza just grip camouflaged under a new name so <laughs> we do have that, that's the actual headline we do have uh basically a recognition that 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 is a, a possibility that, that these things are the grip, but that means that we also don't know all of the numbers or we don't have a hundred percent of our, our data correct because it could have been listed under another, another name completely. It could be blamed on something else, not to mention the fact that the influenza led to pneumonia so often. And so pneumonia would be blamed and then it wouldn't count it in the influenza numbers. Yeah. It was a pneumonic, uh, influenza and it affected the lungs. Um, the lungs would get so sodden with blood from leakage that people would turn blue. Mm. And we talked about this in another episode that when they turned blue, the doctors couldn't tell them. It was cyanosis is what it's called. Mm. The doctors couldn't tell sometimes whether they were white or black, African-American. Wow. Because they were so dark. And they knew as soon as they started to go into go cyanotic that they were going to die. Wow. And they would pile up in the coroner's office because so many people were dying at once. It's a, it was a very contagious influenza because mm -hmm. it was airborne. And we hope that we don't get another one of those. No, that's very true. That's, we definitely hope that we don't. However, it is pretty funny, though, because science was not a big thing at that point. That's true. That when this Spanish influenza hit, we had advertisements like the one that says Spanish influenza help fight it by using a Hoover suction sweeper. <laughs> it's like a two inch, 
by two inch ad. I mean, it's a good size ad. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it says Spanish influenza. And it does have a, a photograph of a woman with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Which is what she should have in her hand. Obviously. She's using it very <laughs> strangely. I've never used a vacuum cleaner that low before. Or she has really long arms. One of the two. Um, it says help, fi help fight it by using a Hoover suction sweeper. This is a cleaner which keeps your rugs clean. It replaces your broom, duster, and dustpan. Dust breeds germs and disease. There is no dust raised in the house when you use a Hoover. Call us today for a demonstration. Of course, they want you to invite them to your house. So that you can give them the flu. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, they can give... Well, of course, dust here in Amarillo... You can have your windows sealed. You can have the doors shut. You can have, you can tape it up, and you're still going to have dust in your house. Yes, absolutely. Well, and the the funny thing I think about this particular thing is the fact that it shows that there's no real understanding of how it how the flu is actually transmitted. Yeah, that particular flu. Yes. Yeah. I mean, dust is not going. Dust doesn't breed disease. That's not what dust is good for. Um, <laughs> I don't know if dust is good for anything now that I say that. But dust is not, you're not going to get bacteria or viruses that are going to just, you know, dust bunnies are, are not a good carrier. <laughs> They're not killer dust bunnies. No, not in this case. <laughs> so one of the, there was another uh, little ad that was placed and there was a couple of people that you'll see these sort of endorsements from. There's the mayor and there's the the uh, the health department's people and uh, GT Vineyard, the city health officer, um, who was a doctor. He, on October 3rd, they put this particular ad out to the citizens of Amarillo and proprietors of all public places. Since there is an epidemic influenza or Spanish influenza and the reports show that the disease has made its appearance in 31 counties in the state it is necessary to take drastic measures at once in order to prevent this epidemic in Amarillo and I hereby declare dry sweeping and dusting unsanitary and is prohibited in all public places such as churches school buildings picture shows office buildings business houses and any office or public public place, dry sweeping, and spitting on sidewalks, or in any public place, will not be tolerated. Dusting <laughs> should be done with a clean, oiled cloth. All restaurants, hotels, and boarding houses must be kept scrupulously clean. And when there is a cuspidor, I guess that's something like a humidifier. It's a spittoon. Oh, uh, okay, a spittoon. All right. It must contain an antiseptic. We're Alcohol. Spitting, spitting is a thing. <laughs> if there is a public drinking cup or towel in the city, it will be condemned at once. Crowded offices and public houses are potent factors in the spread of the disease and should be avoided. The streets and alleys in the business section of the city must be kept exceedingly clean and moist all the time. <laughs> Well, you know, it was the effort that counted. But but some of those things, they do make sense. I mean, sure. Uh, keeping down the dust is 
especially if you have an influenza that affects your lungs, right. you don't want to be breathing in a tremendous amount of dust. Sure. And that was pre-pledge. <laughs> so the, the oiled dusting, that kind of makes sense as well. Um, but as far as transmission of the virus, yeah. the social distancing that they talked about, mm -hmm. and oh my God, a spittoon. Yeah. I mean... How filthy is that? Yeah, those are, those are <laughs> gross to begin with. But a lot of people were chewing tobacco or whatever mm -hmm. else. They just used to hock up on the sidewalk. No spitting <laughs> on the sidewalk. So None of that when yeah. we were tolerated. But, you know, that's they didn't know how it was transmitted. Some viruses, that virus, I believe, could stay on a cool surface for six to eight hours. Wow. Um, I'll have to check my figures on that. But I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that that's what I was reading. You know, in that documentary that I was watching, there was a, a man who was from Europe and he was working on his PhD and he had found a way to get to permafrost in Alaska and and picked up, went down and got the bodies of, of flu victims and was able to identify the, the strain of, of influenza and then it wasn't the first attempt, but the second attempt, he actually got a viable sample that that actually stayed viable long enough for them to to sequence the the genes of of the virus, and it took ten years. Yeah, I think it was. I think that actually happened. What in the nineties, mm -hmm. right around yeah, the late nineties? Uh, yeah, I actually read an entire book about just that. Yeah. And in that village, I cannot remember the name of it, but there was a a village that was mostly natives because. Mm -hmm. This influenza hit the Native Americans much harder. Yeah. Because um, they didn't apparently have an immunity. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. But there was 80, like 80 some people in this village. And out of all of those people in the village, only two survived. Right. And so when they went looking, they found out that a lot of the people that had been buried under the permafrost, they had had an exceedingly warm winter uh -huh. for a couple of years. And so when they found her... When they, when they found the influenza virus, what they did was they went down and dug in this mm -hmm. and, and found a body. And this woman was so obese that the permafrost had not gotten in and, and killed the virus. Yeah. Or something along that line. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was still viable. But it was, it was still viable. But it was only because the woman was so low in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and because she was obese. Yeah. And it, I remember the doctor saying that her lungs, you could, they still looked like influenza lungs. Right. Like they, they were, were the, pretty fresh. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they, I saw pictures of that and that was quite interesting actually. I'll have to check that out. The, uh, I know that the doctor who did that, once he finally got the samples, cause it did mm -hmm. take a long time to get, figure yeah. out where to go and to get yeah. it. And he, packaged it up in five different packages and mailed it mm -hmm. to be sure that they would get the get the samples. Mm -hmm. He want, didn't want to trust the mail with just yeah. one package. Yeah. And there was there was a hiccup with that first trip that it killed the virus before it got to where it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And there weren't any other ways to get the virus again because I guess taking it out of the permafrost it dies pretty quickly uh, or it it makes it unable to be identified or to separate deteriorates yeah. probably and so it was it wasn't until that second go around that it was an american physician that was like hey we want to do this and that doctor was like hey hey 
hey, hey, I know where to go. He had already been up to, mm-hmm. to that village 10 yeah. years before. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he had made he had made friends enough with the woman that was the elder then to to pave the way to to get approval that second time. Otherwise, he would have never gotten it. Right, from the, the, from the family. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it, that's something that being down here, we don't necessarily think about the disposal of these bodies and you and I went to the to the cemetery and we saw all those all those markers the the ones that didn't have anything on there mm-hmm. there there's Just no name markers. there's not even identifiers I mean there were some that were the ones that said you know unknown or there was unknown one and then two and three and, and so on for a while but the unknown Mexican infant or the one that was just marked unknown Negro, mm-hmm. those are based. Those are individuals who remain nameless because they could have come here through the trains. They could have been, you know, traveling up to the north. They or could, all their relatives died and nobody could identify them. Yep, absolutely. And so there's there are there were what a hundred. Yeah, I think when we were counting, it was was around 100, a little over, I think. And then there's the big space in the middle of that area Mm -hmm. that is supposed to be a mass grave. Yeah, that's what I I understood from from hearing tours in the past, was that there was a a time that they had to push them all into one space because there were so many dying that they they couldn't handle digging enough graves. Mm Mm-hmm. So I mean, there that that's gonna need a little bit more digging, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> uh, because it, that I haven't been able to corroborate yet, and it it you would think that that would be something that would be relatively easy. Well, and to, you'd also think it would be something that was marked. Yeah, in some way. Right, and so uh, this is at Lano Cemetery, by the way, mm-hmm. and that's how Amarillans pronounce it, like they pronounce Amarillo in English, not Spanish. <laughs> But, and it's in the, I'm trying to remember the directions. It's in the east. Uh, no, it's on the, it's on the west, southwest corner. Okay. Of the, of the whole property. Right. It's on the western half. Mm-hmm. In the southeast corner of the western half. Let's confuse okay, there we this go. shit out of everyone. <laughs> um, so if anybody ever wants to go and look at that, yeah. that's, the best thing to do is probably go to the office and yeah. ask. <laughs> and it, I, I think it was 60, wasn't it? I think it was either 60 or 61 was the the plot. The, right. The area yeah, that that's, it was in. Yeah, so. that's something you had researched and I really yeah. don't remember. Um, I'm pretty sure it was 60 or 61. But, um, but yeah, there's there are just, there was a rows and rows of the just blank cement bricks. They just, they look like bricks. They mm-hmm. didn't have a... A shape to them much else than just a rectangle. And some of them were um, lettered by hand, obviously, by mm-hmm. someone who wasn't a stonecutter. Yeah. They were just kind of scratched in there. And there was one or two that were concrete mm-hmm. where they had scratched in the name and the date. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe, and there were some that were even, the, there were those that were nice, very elaborate sort of tombstones, but those were typically in Spanish. I think mm-hmm. the three or four that we found were were done they were spanish um well i'm sure that there was a big spanish population yeah i mean it is texas yes and that that's something that 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 one lady had uh, raised in her the video that i had never thought about was the fact that there were 
so many individuals that were coming this direction from escaping right, conflicts so in Mexico, right. basically. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, Amarillo has one of the biggest refugee populations in the country, mm-hmm. for uh, especially for its size. We yeah. have, we have been taking in refugees since at least then, at least oh, yeah. the 1900s, probably much before that. Mm-hmm. And we're still taking in refugees and, and finding homes for them and helping them sure. adjust to a new country where they're safer and and which, can have a better life. Which is funny um, because there's there's not a lot of reason to come up here <laughs> or come to here. I guess if you come from, I know that there was, I saw a documentary one time about the lack of water in, in Africa mm-hmm. and the lack of, and there was a famine, I think, at the time. But this boy said, I want to go to America because even the poor people there are fat. That's a real, real true statement. And so at, no matter what, how Amarillo is, right. it's better than where they were. Right. And I, I think, but, okay, to be fair, I'm not going to knock Amarillo because I love Amarillo. Uh, but it I is, will. It is, <laughs> it's a community of, of fighting survivors, um, in my opinion. You, you don't come here and just make a, make a living. You don't just come here and you're like, hey, we could live here and it's going to be not that big a deal. <laughs> you have to, you have to think about whenever the first individuals came here, the major water source was Canadian river, mm-hmm. which is now almost gone. Thanks to the people at you like, but we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> the, there were not, there, there were not a natural, Oasis is where they could you know, have trees that were going to be their shelter for a little while while they figured oh, out yeah. how to live. They are living on a, a giant paper plate that's got a fan blowing on it. Yeah, I cannot imagine. It's dry. <laughs> yeah. I cannot imagine settlers coming up here in a wagon and going, golly, this is where we need to be. Right. Because it's just beautiful place because it's a desert. I mean, at the time, they did have prairie, and they did sure. have soil, and that was before the Dust Bowl. Of course. Because uh, this was affected strongly by mm-hmm. the Dust Bowl. This and the Oklahoma Panhandle, yeah. which is about, what, 60 miles north of us? Yeah. And, yeah, so there's that. And then <laughs> and then there's the um, the fact that, you know, there's just... The people that settled here were originally... Uh, the white people that settled here were ranchers. Mm-hmm. They, they, there was enough growth for their cows to roam all over yeah. without fences. Sure. And that's why when the farmers came, there was so, so many, so much fighting uh, because the farmers were fencing, yeah. and that cut their cattle off from having something to eat. Yeah. And you know, you say whenever you say the, the people who settled here, and you say to the, the white people that settled here, you can make it absolutely clear that the Indians were smart enough, the Native Americans were smart enough. Not to settle here. Yes. <laughs> this is actually a very nomadic portion of, of where they they traveled through. There was lots of activity and movement throughout this area, but it didn't, it, they didn't stop. They didn't They were stay. smart enough to leave. <laughs> now, I did hear somebody tell me once that the reason why in this part of the state, in this part of Texas, you see the like those wagon wheels at the ends of like mm-hmm. uh, ends of driveways and stuff they're used as decoration well it's because 
whenever they first got here, their wagons broke down and the wheels were just sitting out anyway. And then they just became decoration. That's but right. That's what it was. It was the broken wheels. It wasn't a lot, wasn't a lot to harvest out of that. But, you know, even I moved to Amarillo in 1974 and it was much greener then than it is mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I think that it's getting warmer. Yeah. We've had record heat waves here that, you know. Yeah, we've had snow this past winter that we didn't have a single a single measurable amount of precipitation for like 3 months mm-hmm. last year during winter. Right. That's we went and we went for like 260 days yeah. without Yeah. Well, I actually know a woman who a friend of mine told me that her mother actually grew up in a sod hut. Oh, nice. And a sod, the sod huts here, the way they made them was, they would dig down about five or six feet, mm-hmm. and then they would find something to put as a ceiling, and, and they would use sod for the mm-hmm. walls and for the, for the roof. Yeah. And that's the only way you can stay cool in this area. Yeah. Because being that far down in the ground, it, it moderated the temperature around 65. Sure. Yeah. And that's the people that were the best protected and didn't get as sick whenever, like, the Dust Bowl came through. It was because they had uh, dugout houses, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, there was, that was a very good way to cope with, with this area. But yeah. Well, the Dust Bowl's another it, yeah, episode totally, altogether. But. Totally. Hi, this is Kate Fairweather with Disaster Tales. We really want to thank all of you for supporting and listening to our podcast. One of my favorite episodes was the ones we did about the Branch Davidian compound raid at Waco. That was a collaboration between Disaster Tales and the Home on the Strange podcast. Unfortunately, our friends at Home on the Strange were robbed recently and lost all of their recording equipment and their computer. We're supposed to do an episode with them in December and want to help them get back up and recording by then. Lindsay and Sam run a kick-ass podcast about strange and spooky places and events in the state of Texas. You can help by going to their Patreon page and becoming a supporter. That address is patreon.com slash join slash home on the strange pod question mark. Or just go to Patreon and search for home on the strange. I know they will appreciate it and so would we. And thanks again for listening. of uh we actually have a lot of documentation considering yeah. how new Amarillo was. Yeah, it, I I was shocked at the the efficiency of the paper and that sort of thing. There was another uh ordinance that was passed because um the city health public health people it, the the headlines ordinance enacted by commission to safeguard public health. And what they were saying is that you had to keep your streets clean, your curbs clean, that sort of thing. But it also says that uh, that you can't burn trash because if you burn something that has been touched by somebody who has had the influenza, it could possibly infect everyone else. Well, it, yeah. And that, that time um, 
during that time period, medicine was just becoming scientific from mm-hmm. the 1890s to the 1920. Mm-hmm. They had they went from the miasma theory, mm-hmm. where it was bad air that made you sick, right. to where they actually started identifying germs and viruses. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people, the lay people who weren't in contact, and Amarillo was not exactly in contact so much with the rest of the United States because yeah. it was new and it was really out in the out in the boonies. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's I forgot where I was going with it. So uh, the the air, the, the the way that it was transmitted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody was for sure how it was transmitted, especially if they didn't have any medical background. Yeah. But yeah, it was definitely airborne and it was deadly. Yes, absolutely. Um, we do have things like the um, proclamation from the mayor telling people to stay indoors, mm-hmm. uh, don't go to clubs and like beer, social clubs, and don't. Uh, churches were encouraged not to have services. Right, that's called social distancing. Yeah, and and that was something that happened all over the country. It was it was a, a a really effective way not to have people infected by the flu because when you don't you're not around people affected, you're probably not going to get it either. That's right. Unless you happen to get it the incubation period mm-hmm. before you uh, get to isolate yourself. Right. But if you had someone in the family that had it, you were probably going to get it too. Right. And 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 some cases were milder than others, but there were obviously ones that were very virulent i have one of uh there was a documentary that i i did see that a woman was talking about her family actually coming up from mexico because of the mexican revolution and by the time they got up to this part of the country they they had family members that had contracted the spanish influenza as well and uh, this particular individual was in the oklahoma area and but actually pretty close to us and what we saw when we went to the cemetery is there were many his you know unknown mexican uh, markers and and then a lot of markers that had spanish on them because they were the, right the spanish um and they had the hispanic English. surnames and and mm-hmm. they also had the spanish writing right and so that may that may be something else that that has led to to this little area being as, as contaminated or or being affected the way it was. And there are there are things too like and um, there are people that have letters back and forth. That was something else I was I was going to share that I had um I work at the archives in the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and the collection that I'm working on right now is a branching family, they're the Triggs and mm-hmm. uh Several of the letters that I've come across are in late 1918, early 1919, and it talks about how the members of their family have the flu, and it's not that they don't identify it as Spanish influence, of course, but because, I mean, that not everybody was calling it that. It was just the flu, but they were a family that came back and forth to Amarillo all the time. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were between New Mexico and Amarillo. And, and so you would, they would talk about riding the train and, you know, Steve, would, it was mm-hmm. on the train and you think, well, y'all should probably just stay at home. <laughs> but it was, it was one of those things that would, they would talk about, um, you know, 
they've got the flu. Hopefully they get better, you know, because they knew that it was a real possibility that well, it's it not like could they be could, terminal. It's not like they could listen to a radio on the ranch and find out what was going on. No, not that yet. So they were coming into Amarillo without knowing that the influenza was sure, there. Yeah, and a lot of it is, and they did do a lot of uh, telegram telegrams at that time. Um, there's I have quite a few of those in that collection. Uh, letter writing was the thing, though. Oh, I yeah. I mean, it was the thing. And if, you know, if you're sending mail back and forth during the winter months, they they actually got things to the places they were intended pretty quick. Oh, that's good. And so if you're using, you know, materials that don't necessarily, or, you know, discourage the growth of bacteria, but, you mm-hmm. know, if you... It, I mean, they would use lots of, there's vellum paper quite a bit and that sort of thing. And so germs can stay on that sort of stuff for a little while. And I mean, that going back and forth even could, could result in in spreading. Well, well, more likely it would be the mail carrier. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think they may have actually had some phones in the area at the time. Yes. uh, These guys didn't though. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they did not get their, their phone system until, um, about mid mid twenties, um, they didn't actually have. Um, actually, the the Triggs didn't have their yeah their telephone. I don't think they got it until fifty seven, if I remember right, because there was a bit of a, a yeah a brouhaha over the line itself. But of course, um, San Marilla. But <laughs> no, this this was in New Mexico. Oh, okay. um, but the they originally they raised XIT cattle. They the the Trigg family mm-hmm. along with the Sheltons had um, bought the last of the XIT cattle, but um, but there was that's another thing that you you think about is is the accessibility to not only telephones but not everybody still had they not everybody was electric a hundred percent at that point and so or had plumbing yeah indoors. indoor plumbing yeah mm-hmm. um, and so. Of course, washing your hands is going to be hard. But if you do wash your hands, are you doing it at a basin where four other people are going to wash their hands? You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And Well, kind of along that line, but not having to do with this disaster, uh, coal miners used to come home and wash it in the same tub. And the, and the man would wash first. Mm-hmm. And then the children and whoever else was left using the same water. Yeah. And that's where the phrase throwing the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. came from because the water was so dark from the coal by then that you couldn't see the you baby. Could, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's something else we, we, we run a far greater uh, chance of not seeing another epidemic like this because we do have newscasters that are telling us, Hey, flu's hitting early this year. Or we have, you know, our our doctors who are like, okay, here's Tamiflu. Right. If CDC. It doesn't, if it doesn't make you bonkers. Um, CDC tracks that. At mm-hmm. the time, the health department only recording deaths of children by flu. Oh, yeah. Not influenza cases yeah. or, or death, total deaths. Yeah. Worldwide, this pandemic took, as it could have been as many as 50 million. 50 million sounds right. Right. 50 million Somewhere between twenty-five and fifty million. Yeah, and and so that's that's a lot of bodies you got to deal with. Yeah, yeah. But um, it it did like all flus. It it went through the season. 
and it and it was so lethal that it killed off its its hosts mm-hmm. and and it mutates pretty quickly that kind of virus mutates it mutated out of lethality yeah so that was good all the scientific exploration being done by doctors who'd been educated with scientific methods was going on mostly on the east coast yeah it really hadn't come back this way yet Mm-mm. and one of the things one of the problems they had at these army camps was that the doctors and nurses were getting sick and so they were begging for people who it some one of the things they did was they had all the doctors in the country rated by their peers mm-hmm. and only 50 percent of them actually used scientific method at all and so 50% of the doctors were worthless. <laughs> and then more important was the nurses, uh, more important than the doctors, because they had the skills to actually physically help the person, mm-hmm. whereas the doctor was more diagnostic and, and recommendations. Right. And so they were begging for nurses, and the Red Cross was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the Red Cross was really the people that were in charge of recruiting nurses training they were asking for people that had not finished nursing school they were asking for people who had helped with sick relatives they just needed somebody who could get in there and do the nursing so the red cross was really doing a lot of the organization of that they were they went out and found nurses they went and trained people and Mm -hmm. and got help in there to the hospitals of course then they would get sick and die some of them yeah yeah and you know it's it's not something that you're able to always predict who's gonna be taken out by it mm-hmm. even if you're exposed to it and so that's and that's, that happens even today though there's you know we i've dealt with several people my son had the flu several people i've i know have had the flu i am knock on wood have not had the flu yet <laughs> that's a good thing um uh, there's i mean 500 milligrams of vitamin C every day may actually be effective. Um, One of the other things that the Red Cross did was, I can't remember who started it, but somebody started using a cotton face mask. Mm -hmm. And so the Red Cross, um, once, I'm sorry, once they were, um, they were rolling bandages. Mm -hmm. And and so once they discovered that the masks were needed, they started making masks. Thousands and thousands of masks. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at pictures, you'll see police officers wearing masks. And sure. you'll see just people in general wearing masks. You had a picture of a baseball player who was wearing a cotton mask. And I thought that was interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the ways that maybe the idea of, you know, dust or, or smells getting into your body, if, if a cotton mask prevented it, maybe it was... It was also the, the way to prevent it was to, to make sure that you didn't, didn't get in dusty places or dirty places. Right. Well, and, and a cotton mask, the pores are so big that it won't stop a virus, but, <laughs> but it has to be pushed through that mask to get to you. Right. So they probably were helpful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, of course, then you got to make sure and wash your hands. That was, that's the big thing is yep. the hand washing and, and that I don't know how many people were actually doing that at that time. Because some doctors, they'd go and work on one patient, go directly to the next one, mm-hmm. and, and then would spread from one to the other. Yeah. And they wouldn't clean their instruments either. Yeah. That was Sterilization was not a, a, a thing. thing. But um, I, as, as I remember um, some discussions about this time period, um, 
it was right about now that hand washing became it the literally the biggest advancement in medical science. Mm-hmm. Wash your hands. Yeah. And this is where not long after this is when we start to see antibacterial soaps and things like that. Yeah, my uh, grandmother was an RN. She was born in 1910, and she said that they would have to wash down the the operation suites. Mm-hmm. The surgical suites with green soap is what they called it. And it was an antibacterial soap. Nice. But that's yeah. just what they called it, green soap. Green soap. I wonder what that, wonder what that soap was. I'll have to find us some green soap. I'd like to thank Renee Dantes for taking the time and doing the research to help out with this episode. We really appreciate it. A uh, little editing note is that when we were talking about a humidor... We were actually talking about a cuspidor, which is a spittoon, but we both got it mixed up. So sorry about that, folks. And we'll talk to you next time on Disaster Tales. Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com. And you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip comes from several large-scale disasters. Years ago in Florida, I received a frantic call from a woman who was trapped in her house. She said, I can't get out of the house. It's going into a sinkhole. Did you try the front door, I asked? Yes, but it's in the hole. Did you try the back door? Yes, but there's snakes all over outside of it. Is there a window you can get out of? She stopped for a moment, then said, yes. I said, grab your purse and get out the window. The lesson here is know your exits. You should practice emergency evacuation and fire drills in your home. In a restaurant, check where the fire doors are located. In some circumstances, you might have limited visibility. So when you stay at a hotel, count the number of doors between yours and the fire stairs. On an airplane, count the number of seat backs to the nearest exit. This will help you get out of a dangerous situation. And if you know what you're doing, you may be able to save others as well. Y'all be careful out there.